Hello and welcome to Stig Abel's Guide to Reading, a podcast in which I talk about books that mean something to me and a special guest. It's being made in conjunction with my own book, Things I Learned on the 628, an account of a year I spent reading books on my commute, if you can think of such a thing, and came up with various theories about different types of literature, from crime fiction to American classics, from Shakespeare to poetry. And this week, I'm so pleased we'll be talking about Shakespeare, the world's greatest writer, whose work I've been reading quietly for years. Indeed, I once read his complete works on the commute over a period of six months, half a year of pleasure going from two gentlemen of Verona to the two noble kinsmen, which is more or less the chronological order. My special guest is a great Shakespearean, as well as being a formidable actor, director, writer, and even national treasure. He needs scarce more introduction than that. Simon Callow. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. <laughs> Hello, Stig. Uh, now, the idea of the show, Simon, we each bring one book in our chosen category. So this week is going to be a play of Shakespeare. Uh, but before we get to, to that, I, can I put my modest theory to you about Shakespeare and see what you make of it? Uh, because the way I try and think about Shakespeare, I always end up ending up thinking about Shakespeare, is that never in human history has there been a better combination of genius and hack? Um, huh. Because he's, he has this genius, which is manifest when he reads it, but he had to churn this stuff out for money. And so most geniuses, you kind of feel sort of sweating over every word. But with Shakespeare, he had to just be incredibly quick and just push this stuff out. And I'm not sure there's any other artist where that combination has ever resided so well together. Uh, yes. Well, it's certainly true. You're, you're absolutely right. That's the way he had to do it. But I'm not sure it's quite as unusual as you suggest. I mean, Bach was in very much the same situation. Uh, he had to turn out a cantata every week in St. Thomas's in Leipzig. Mozart had to turn out things to order. It's only with the kind of beginning, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, that you get this feeling. I suppose Beethoven's the absolute prototype of that, of of the the artist who is an independent person who is possibly of, of greater stature than his employers or than than the public and uh, who is involved in some sort of anguished relationship with his art um most uh, uh artists were artisans first you know yeah. uh, they were craftspeople and um, they had to respond pretty damn quickly in the case of, of Shakespeare, especially to changing tastes and uh, to the specific audience for which they were writing. Sometimes they were writing for the general public and sometimes they were writing for the monarch. And um, uh, it, sometimes they were writing for outdoor theatres, sometimes for indoor theatres and so on. So um, uh, he, he was uh, uh, infinitely, had to be infinitely adaptable. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great book. I, I was just looking at, if you look in Shakespeare's career, there are two kind of especially fertile runs of production, which I think you could probably make a case of never been equaled anywhere. In 1599 to 1600 about, we get in a row, Henry V, As You Like It, Julius Caesar, Twelfth Night and Hamlet. Yeah. And in 1604-5, you get Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, Antony and Cleopatra and Coriolanus. And yeah. That doesn't. I mean, when you when you think of all of those those plays together, to think that in a year he wrote them, that does feel like quite an extraordinary run of production, doesn't it? Staggering. It's staggering. But but what's wonderful to me about it is that it, it goes hand in glove with his professional life, yeah. uh, um, with his simple practical capacity to um, put 
produce stories that would be of interest to the public. Um, I'm absolutely convinced of um, uh, Shakespeare's, shall we say, low self-esteem or, or realistic self-esteem, whatever yeah. you, however you want to put it. Um, uh, there's nothing in, in anything we know about Shakespeare. And of course, it's pretty scattered what we know about Shakespeare. We actually know a lot. People say we don't know anything. Well, of course, we know a vast amount of Shakespeare, but not continuous um, uh, in the way that we do about his contemporary and rival, Ben Jonson. And Ben Jonson was incredibly boastful about his own work. He, he knew how good he was. He was yeah. the master. He, he was a classicist. He was a, a, a master of construction and, and, and all of that. And he indeed... Um, in conversation books that we have of Ben Johnson, uh, was rather contemptuous of Shakespeare's lackadaisical approach, slapdash approach to geography, for example. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I, I have this terrific feeling of, of a man just producing work that, that his imagination demanded that he write, but, uh, but, but do it to order at the same time. Um, it, it, I mean... We can endlessly speculate about what kind of a person he was, but one one thing I think he must have been was very tired. That's such a that, yeah, exactly. You actually, you get that in the sonnets. Very often, you you hear yeah. this sort of sense of a of a person getting old and sort of feeling it in his bones. Yeah, and, and remember, he was probably forty when he was saying that. Yeah, yeah, he was well, a bit younger, even in his mid thirties, he's saying that. Yeah, I think the situation of Shakespeare, or the the nature of his mind, was that he. Um, entered into his imagination in a way that is not merely hard for the rest of us to comprehend, but actually physically dangerous for you. Because if you live through it in that kind of way, and that as an actor, you're terrifically conscious of of, of the characters being, um, of, of the uh, complete co uh, credibility of their emotional journeys. Um, you think, well, any of us uh, have, all of us, no doubt, have felt jealousy. But Shakespeare allowed himself to go the whole way in his mind with what jealousy is like when it really takes you over completely. And that can't be all that healthy for you, you know? No, I mean, it's such a good point that we, we probably want Shakespeare to be, because, you know, he, there's this legend that he sort of born and died on St. George's Day. Probably is not true at all, but we yeah. romanticise Shakespeare in this country. We want him to be... Uh, a lovely person you know when when his son Hamnet dies you know people Ken Branagh did a, a, a film a couple of years ago and it was like how 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 he yeah. mourned the death and and, Hamnet, and actually yeah. probably at the time he was writing Merry Wives of Windsor and maybe he was grieving yeah. and there's that great bit in in, in uh, Prince John where King John rather where there's a lovely lines about the death of a child and you think well maybe oh. he was uh, feeling like that but but we do want him to be a nice person and, and, and maybe we shouldn't, maybe we don't need to think of him like that because as you say, he might have been a very complicated character and it probably had to be to, to write this stuff. I'm sure he was. Uh, and also, I, I'm sure that in a way he was the, the slave of his muse, as, as people might have said in an earlier generation, that, that he thought, oh my God, here it comes again, inspiration. You know, it's... <laughs> Absolutely. I can't not write this. I've got to write this because it's in my mind. I've got to get it out of my mind. And uh, th there's this ter terrific sense of, of, uh, of, well, 
organic sense. I mean, of course, there are lots of problems with some of the plays and, and, and we can't be sure, still sure about the authenticity of any of the texts, the complete authenticity of them. It wasn't, he, he again, clearly wasn't somebody who was very interested in preserving his own work. It, it, it was, you know, seven years after he died that the, the, the first folio came out and, and uh, Ben Johnson, meanwhile, had been busily putting collected works you know together and impeccable they are too nothing's misspelt it's all beautifully laid out on the page because you know this was posterity and all of that and it was important to bend and you can feel none of that mattered to shakespeare at all he just you know the along along you know he, he i imagine him i've always imagined him i've always by the way rather uh, believed in that not very well drawn uh, engraving, which is uh, uh, the frontispiece of the first folio yeah. by a, a Dutch uh, a, a artist called Grieshit. And um, people have all said, oh, he looks so kind of middle-aged and washed out and terrible. That can't be Shakespeare. I think that's exactly what Shakespeare would have looked like. He looks like he's hardly ever sleeps at all. And, 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 and he's, you know, it's almost like a form of, uh, madness, you might say, to, to have your mind teeming with these figures, these characters, and and this the, the, these these words just and, and, and the the metaphors and so on are so completely organic. They're not worked out. You don't think him thinking. Now I wonder what this is like. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, shall I compare thee to? I wonder what. Um, oh, I know. A summer's day. No, 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 no. Out it comes. It's just. It's there. It's just. In, in its pure essential form, and uh, I, I think I just don't think he probably had a terribly enjoyable life at all. I, I suspect it was just tiring, you know. As I as I say again, um, whether he got any satisfaction from it at all, we don't know. In the sonnets, he he he, he poo poos his own work uh, um, and feels that he's sort of nothing and nobody would clearly much rather have been very handsome and 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 an aristocrat like his patron you know yeah. but but he wasn't he wasn't that he was a he was a, a sort of whatever class we can put him in probably son of the mayor of stratford he was probably you know lower middle class something like that middle class ish um and uh, uh just um you know had had very, I'm sure, not very much money when they were growing up, and uh, and did all sorts of menial jobs. I'm also sure, and and then this gift began to sort of, it was growing inside him, and and he just had to become its slave. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the sonnets because I'd never read them end to end, as it were, until last year when I did it at the beginning of my sort of Shakespeare month. I, oh, I, read, yeah. them, I read them end to end, and uh, I mean several things strike you when you, when you read them. Firstly, how Maybe it's him. Maybe it's a character. There's a bit of there's a bit of the sort of self indulgent, whiny, stalkery figure. I think <laughs> in, in in the story, very quite ham, bit Hamlet. You can you can feel the sort of the presence of Hamlet a little bit bit in it. And oh, uh, and also, you know, I never really thought about this this properly. But imagine being his wife. I mean, she probably couldn't read the sonnets because she probably couldn't read. But you know, they are one of the great pieces of gay literature in the English language, aren't they? I mean, they are, they are, yeah. and, and that doesn't really get told you very much that all these people who read out these sonnets in, in church uh, yeah, yeah. probably never realize that they are reading out one of the great pieces of the English gay canon uh, of all time. Uh, indeed. Um, uh, uh, the thing is about the sonnets that is um, so baffling in a way is that they don't seem to cohere 
you you read the one and that seems to have a a certain kind of a theme or tendency, as you say, he seems to be in love with this young man. He is in love with this young man, the poet. But whether the poet is Shakespeare himself yeah. or not, we absolutely can't say for sure. But the poet is clearly becoming obsessed by, fascinated, enchanted by this this young man of exceptional beauty. All the things he isn't exceptionally beautiful, exceptionally rich, exceptionally uh, um, um, aristocratic. And uh, it's that sort of terrible feeling of self-abasement. God, I'm nothing. Look at yeah. this beautiful guy. I mean, oh, to be him, oh, to be close to him and so on. All, all of that, wonderful. It's, it's, there's nothing in English literature. I mean, nothing to, I mean, gay or straight. There's nothing in English literature as devastating, as, as, as self-abnegating as these poems, which, in which he, he, he destroys himself before your very eyes. But the, the thing is, it's very hard. You, you, so you get a, a small batch of poems like that, and then suddenly you're onto something much more general, meditation about time or whatever, and then something else which is quite obscure, quite a sort of quiet little meditation about something. So a sort of ragbag, in a way, which has deterred people, alas, from reading what not absolutely all of them, but but a vast majority of them are among the glories of English literature. A strange, uh, considering how much how obsessed we all are by Shakespeare, that even people who regularly see the plays and know them intimately don't know the sonnets very well. And I never, I never studied them. You know, I did Shakespeare at university, and yeah, 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 quite. never did, never did the sonnets. Sort of ungraspable in a way. And mm. um, I, I think uh, there are various people who've attempted to reorder the sonnets. And uh, I, for a long time, was involved in 1979. I, I, I performed all of the sonnets one afternoon at the, uh, in the Olivier Theatre at the National. <laughs> it took, took a little while. And I wasn't uh, exactly most relaxed by, uh, as I walked on stage seeing Sir John Gielgud sitting in the third. Oh, my God. Um, it was completely sold out. Olivier Theatre was incredibly thrilling, but incredibly daunting. But um, this uh, chap called John Pardle, whose daughter, Ruth Pardle, is a very distinguished poet uh, of our time. Yeah. Um, but John, who's now dead, uh, was a, a psychoanalyst. And uh, he worked out an incredibly elaborate backstory to it all. And rearranged the sonnets. Now, scholars being what they are, this immediately was denounced and, and, and dismissed and, and laughed out of court by the literary scholars, because he'd come at it not so much from a literary perspective as from the perspective of a psychoanalyst. Um, but in my view, John's version does actually enable you to see what was going on in those sonnets. And it's a really strong and extraordinary story. And, and then each sonnet begins to mean so very, very much more when you put them in, in, in that order. I'm not saying it's actually the right order. There was every reason why whoever published it, and we don't really know who published it, no. um, would, would want to scramble the sonnets a bit because they're a bit on the nose, you know. Yeah. And also there's that thing that looks like Shakespeare agreed to them being published and then just sort of left this this other guy to publish them and paid no attention to it. One theory is that he had to leave London because of the plague and needed a bit of money and sort of sold the sonnets on and then paid no attention to how they were published. Um, yeah. But like so many things, we never truly know. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll never quite know. But some people even suggest that it was the mother of uh, uh, of the uh, Earl of... Uh, um, um, oh God, which one was it? Uh, Southampton, was it? Was no, it not Southampton. Southampton. The other one is, is uh, um, Wilson House. Um, anyway, uh, whoever he was, William Herbert. Is that William Herbert? The other William one? Herbert, Pembroke, the Earl of Pembroke, yeah. uh, um, and uh, his mother uh, Anne Sidney, who who was a poet herself, um, might have actually been involved in trying to suppress it in some way, but instead scrambled. I mean, 
this is all charming speculation and it's it's lovely but uh, it, it doesn't really get us any it, it further. Uh, my favorite of the sonnets I'm, I'm i'm slightly loath to read out a sonnet to you one of the great voices of, of shakespeare uh, simon but my favorite sonnet is 73 which is one about um time's impact shall i read a little bit of it see what just please go on I um when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang in me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all the rest um and i love bare ruined choirs oh, the idea- it's a wonderful poem altogether, right, right through. You should have read it all. It's, it's just absolutely wonderful. Uh, do you have a favourite? Do I have a favourite? Yeah. Um, I think the one that, for some reason, has really lodged itself most securely for all time in my brain is the one that starts, like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place with that which goes before. In sequent toil, all forwards to contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, where with being crowned, crooked eclipses against his glory fight, and time which gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels in beauty's brow, feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. Yet in time to hope my verse shall stand, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand. I, I think that's an astonishing poem. It is, and, and it reminds you that, you know, whatever we might think of the sonnets, they may, may be about uh, being in love with another man, but they're so often about time, aren't they? They're so often about the, the, the path of time, getting old, being forgotten, yeah. Uh, being mortal and you yeah. know that that in the end is what we turn to Shakespeare for the sort of the the the, the sort of the sensations the the flickers of of, of humanity well, I suppose yeah we, exactly we turn to him for everything that it is to be human and uh, um, that's uh, uh, the, you know the, the the sense of encroaching time uh, but he you know people have I think perhaps rather um, foolishly stated that Shakespeare invented um, human you know set character or whatever um that that he he defined all these things for us love and jealousy and 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 death in some ways there's some you know i know what they're talking about but but it is certainly true that when you do feel these great emotions and particularly i speak feelingly on this subject as you uh, become conscious of the tread of time and 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 the and, and mortality itself of course you go to shakespeare because nobody seems really to have said it so well or to have summed it up so yeah. remarkably for, yes. as for all time you know it's very, very true. We should talk about the plays uh, because we could talk about Shakespeare. I suspect this podcast could go on for days, Simon. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the, uh, the play you wanted to talk about because uh, I write about it actually in my book, Titus Andronicus. And it's, um, I'm rather fond of this play. It's much sneered at actually by many people for being too gruesome. 
Uh, it actually summarizes its own plot in the text. It says it's full of murders, rapes and massacres, acts of black night, abominable deeds, complots of mischief, treason, villainies, ruthful to hear, yet piteously performed. Yeah. Uh, it's, I could make the case very strongly that it's not a great play, but it, it is definitely a important part of the Shakespeare canon. What I think it is, 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 is above all, it's an early play. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, possibly the first play that he wrote. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether he wrote it all, whether other people uh, collaborated in it, which was, of course, a very standard thing in the Elizabethan theatre. I mean, people literally, you know, if you were pressed uh, for time, you'd ask a, a friend to write Act 4 for you. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was like... Hollywood, you know, uh, um, uh, Hollywood or television today, really. I mean, it's, there, there, there wasn't. But, but clearly there was, as there is in Hollywood today, there's a leading writer, you know, uh, um, and uh, I'm sure that Shakespeare was very quickly um, identified as, as, as the best they had. But um, what's fascinating to me, I, I, this is the first part I ever played in Shakespeare. Really, uh, I, I was um, I was nineteen seventy seven, so I was twenty twenty eight, and um, uh, it was. Uh, I mean, it's it's a monumental part, Titus, uh, and all the more difficult because the verse varies in quality so much, and uh, uh, you, you, the opening is. Just, I mean, it, it's like it, it's just like uh, um, uh, automatic writing. It just it, it's yep. just there's there's no real imagery in it of any great value. The, Titus actually has a rather good opening speech when he says, "Hail Rome, victorious in thy mourning weeds," and so on, and addresses Roman and talks about all his dead sons and so on. Uh, but it's all right. But it's not nothing exciting, nothing thrilling. But my feeling about it, as opposed to those who believe that it's you know the work of a committee is that Shakespeare's, as he's writing the play, keeps on trying on different styles and different yep. modes. And uh, we get the noble, the, the heroic. Um, uh, uh, we get the, uh, the, 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 the sort of demented, tyrannic mode of, of Saturninus. Um, and then when Titus loses his own wits, Shakespeare... It suddenly becomes Shakespeare. It's yeah. absolutely extraordinary how how we're we're in the world of King Lear suddenly. Oh, it's uh, uh, that is such. Uh, it feels to me that of all things, Titus is he is a prototype for for Lear. There's, yeah. to, to me, all of tragedy is kind of summarized by that half line in in King Lear where he says the worst is not so as long. Lear doesn't say this. Someone says the worst is not so as long as we can say this is the worst. The idea yeah. that if you could put something into words, yeah. it's not that bad. And the whole of tragedy is basically trying to find a shape for a shriek, that sort of sense of a, a sort of guttural shriek, which is yeah. the true expression of pain. And as you then start to shape it in words, you're controlling it, you're exercising authority. And, and actually, Titus says that at one point. He said, if there were a reason for these miseries, then into limits could I bind my woes. Yeah, and of course, his, his daughter can't speak. She's had her tongue ripped out. She's had her hands yeah. removed. She can't express it. And there's that bit also where he talks about, he, he, they say, why do you laugh? Why dost thou laugh? And he says, yeah. because I've got no more tears to shed. Uh, and, and then we're definitely in full Shakespeare here, aren't we? We're in, uh, uh, we're in Shakespeare uh, 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 and then Beckett. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, we're it, it's, it's an extraordinary experience to play it because the first third of the play is 
really hard going. It's this Faustian verse, and you have to somehow animate it and keep it alive and, 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 and fresh to the ear, but it's not. The imagery is very stale and very formulaic and so on. And then, then as he undergoes his torments, he himself, Titus, starts to become first extraordinary eloquent he at one point says but feels that he's become the sea such as his misery that he's yeah. he's he's like an ocean of grief inside him um and then he goes mad i mean really full-on mad he starts uh, uh shooting arrows at the planet That's right, yeah. and uh to to send messages to to saturninus and uh um at the end de- devises this completely bonkers idea of of uh, uh, killing and cutting up his enemy's sons and serving them in a pie <laughs> to her, which is you know, a trope from classical theatre, from Thyestes and so on. But um, uh, not, not, none of this re- really much is very original to Shakespeare. But what is absolutely extraordinary is just the utter simplicity of it. And that's, of course, what happens in Lear, which has got an awful lot of incredibly compacted uh, imagery and metaphors and so on, but actually resolves itself into these extraordinarily simple phrases. And uh, then then we are absolutely in the territory of greatness, and that sort of starts with Titus. And I, I think, you know, famously, Titus was sort of just dismissed. People said he didn't write it for centuries said he didn't write it, uh, it's inferior, we don't want to associate that with our great Shakespeare, the man who wrote Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet, we can't tolerate this this 10th rate uh, uh, play. But as um, uh, history has moved on and and returned to barbarism, um, it uh, suddenly seems fantastically real and timely. And if you have a, a clearly demented person as the emperor or the president or whatever else you want to call him or the prime minister, um, uh, then you really don't know where you are. The the world just begins to fall apart and hence the play resolving itself into sort of clown shows in in, in some parts and and completely insane and dreamlike things like a man cutting his own hand off on stage. It's just... Uh, uh, almost unbearable. You think yes, but worse is happening. Or look around you. Worse is happening. Uh, people literally, as we all too horribly recently know, are being beheaded in the streets of Paris. You know, yeah. or the streets of London. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, you think uh, well, this is actually prescient. This play, this yeah. play is telling us an awful truth about uh, uh, human nature this is this is where we can go and we can go worse than this even if you like uh, and uh, it, it so Shakespeare that's the astounding thing about his quality is how all in, as, a, as a writer is it's so all-encompassing he could go from the sweetest most frolicsome uh, playful uh, lovers teasing each other and then right through to this to people gouging eyes out and cutting hands off and it's all you know. All human life is there. There's a. Uh, there's got a very good baddie. It's worth pointing out. Oh uh, yeah, two. Yeah, two. But there's Aaron the Moor who uh, looks ahead a bit to Iago, uh, probably. 
Um, yeah. He's so this is this is how evil he is. This is a line from it which I which sticks in the mind. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves and set them upright at their dear friends' doors. Um, <laughs> yes. Which is I think, not really Othello. It has to be. Said. Yeah, yeah. Um, Othello's kind of the opposite, isn't he? Othello is this very sophisticated, um, yeah, educated. No, I mean, I mean more Iago than Othello. But I mean, I, but the yeah. thing I like about Aaron the more um, Simon is. Even though he's a black guy, and there's obviously the racism of the time is a bit there, he's also yeah. even slightly redeemed. I mean, because he has a child with Tamora, who's the other bad uh, baddie in it, yes. the, uh, the queen, and she's so evil that there's a there's a line in it I found that just is, is amazing. She talks about her sons killing. Um, Let my spleenful sons this troll deflower. So she's encouraging her sons to rape Lavinia. Yeah. So she's a really. Oh, yeah. Really horrible oh. piece of work, but Aaron, so Aaron is, is is disregarded and abused by people, and he has a baby with Tamora, and the baby's called a joyless, dismal, black, and sorrowful issue. Here is the babe as loathsome as a toad, <laughs> and you get this moment where everyone is being horrendously racist and vile, and Aaron, yeah. who's this evil person, you know, would stand up dead bodies at their friends' doors, and yet he refuses to let the child go. He, yeah. And you see that, you know, whatever else he might be, this is his son and this, this world is telling him it's ugly and he won't have it. He clings on yeah. to it. And, and that's, again, we're in that's pride. Shakespearean. Absolutely. Quintessentially Shakespearean. It, it, it's all there. We, we're all capable of all of this, is what he's saying, of both of love of a child and this dastardly behaviour. The, the other villain you left out is, because uh, it's a play rich in villains, is Saturninus, yeah. the emperor. That he, I think, is in some ways almost the most. He's so unhinged. It's, uh, I think, the most unhinged character in Shakespeare. Uh, and he changes his mind within seconds. Uh, um, it turns from an affable uh, emperor into an absolute monster. Uh, uh, um, uh, it, that's the world that he's created in this play, and it's so recognisable. Um, we probably won't have time to do this properly, uh, Simon, because my nomination's a bit boring, and it's, it's the mid- we're in the sort of middle period of Shakespeare with this. It's, it's Hamlet, yeah. uh, which I've probably read 50, more than 50 times in my life. Good luck. Uh, yeah. I, I love it very deeply, really because I think what you're talking about there in, that's there in, in bits of Titus is just runs through Hamlet completely. You know, at one level, it is a revenge tragedy like Titus. It's about someone's uh, dad being killed and him trying to get back at uh, the person who did it. But yeah. then it just pauses and becomes uh, just a consideration of, of what it is to be human. And I was trying to work out what I would say about it that would make any sense because, you know, it's probably the most written about cultural artifact in our language, yeah. possibly. And the thing that struck me is, is just, and you mentioned this once, the phrase-making is it's a very long play. It's a messy play textually. We don't quite know which version he wanted to have. But it's the ability to say things in very few words. That Although Shakespeare is voluble and there's thousands and thousands of lines, you yep. see this in, in, in Hamlet. And a couple of lines I wanted to say to you. One, that's particularly beautiful. It's just, it's just so clever and clear. So Hamlet tells a rather involved story of child actors winning yeah. plaudits. Yeah. And then he says, the problem with them is, though, they exclaim against their own succession. And what that means is that if child actors are successful, when they yeah. grow up, they'll be out of work because everyone will want child actors only. And so they're yeah, creating yeah. a market and then that market will harm them. Yeah, It's yeah. an amazingly difficult idea to try and explain. I'm sort of babbling yeah. on when I try and do it. And he says it in, that's five words, exclaim yeah. against their own succession. You think, well, there is no way of putting that better. 
there is just not a way of putting that more clearly yeah. and more briefly. And, and the, the plays are, are full of in-jokes as well about the theatre. So that's a, a, a very typical, because the, the Shakespeare's uh, the, the big fad in London in the uh, uh, early 1600s was uh, child companies. Uh, uh, boy actors, you know, who who do an entire play. I mean, Ben Jonson's Sejanus, yeah. which is a horrifically complex play about Roman intrigue and politics, played by kids. I mean, ten-year-old, twelve-year-old kids. Um, and so, so it, it it's great that and typical. Actually, Hamlet more than almost any of the places filled with theatrical references and indeed has a, a troupe of players yeah, in it. But that simplicity that you speak of, I mean, let's not be ashamed or shy of, 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 of quoting the most famous phrase of all, which we sort of barely can hear anymore. It's so familiar. But when Hamlet just comes to the foot of the stage and he says to the audience, to be or not to be, that is the question. Just that. It's, I mean, it's so simple. I mean, it is a matter of thinking about committing suicide. Yeah. To be or not to be. And if you put it in those terms, it, not being is just such an astonishing... It is the trouble with Shakespeare for all of us is that we just don't very... You know, we, it's so hard without, you know, the actor kind of going through hoops to try to make you hear it as if for the first time. Yeah. We, we, it's, it's all... Passed sort of into the language. It was my almost my favorite. You you quoted your favorite uh, line from Lear, and my favorite line uh, from um, uh, nearly in all of Shakespeare is from As You Like It, and it's um, in the scene where um, uh, the Duke and the uh, and his courtiers, the Duke Senior and his courtiers, are in exile. They're living in the forest, which the, most of the courtiers detest, um, and uh, suddenly. Orlando bursts in, frightened and and, and hungry, and, and and he's left his old servant Adam in the forest, and he he kind of comes on very strong, and the Duke calms him down and promises that he'll feed him, and so on, tells him to go off and fetch old Adam, and so uh, pacified um, uh, Orlando goes off, and the Duke turns to his courtiers, and he says, "Thou seest, we are not all alone, unhappy," and. That yeah. seems the oh. absolute essence of why we do theatre at all. Thou seest that we are not all alone unhappy. You know, it's just miraculous. And nobody ever thinks about that. He goes on to say something much grander, which is this wide and universal theatre presenteth more shows and so on. Uh, uh, and then, of course, Jake Reese picks it up and says, all the world's a stage. Yeah. And all the men and women merely players. But that line, Thou seest we are not all alone unhappy. It has such resonance to me. There's one uh, that I think of in, in exactly on similar lines in Winter's Tale. This is about the love of your son, uh, yeah. a, a child. He makes a July's day short as December and with his varying childness cures in me thoughts that would thick my blood. And the idea that, that life is full of thoughts that thick your blood and you get preoccupied with yourself and and you you get down and you get into dark places and you worry and you're and then there's varying childness varying childness is yeah is such a it's such a beautiful concept exquisite what a wonderful play that is altogether yeah and, and from that same play 
It's the wonderful, wonderful scene before um, Leontes erupts into the nursery with all his uh, jealous rage and delusions. Um, that Mamilius, the son who who will die, uh, is with his mother and the, the ladies in waiting, and they're all. It's a delicious scene of him teasing them and pretending he loves one more than the other, and it's completely real and human. But an, an example of, of, of or an almost trivial example, but an example of the extraordinary way in which you feel Shakespeare had just lived a normal life and seen, but captured everything in, in his on his astonishing kind of um, hard disk of his mind, um, where where the Queen says, um, uh, tell us a tale, she says to Mamilius, and uh, he, he says, merry or sad shall be, and she says, a, a, a merry one, uh, whatever, uh, but a sad, he says, a sad one's, a sad tale's best for winter. And so she says, come, sit down, come on. Sit down, sit. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, that's not, you know, you know, that's not even writing, but it no. is. That's exactly a mother talking to her child. And and that line, written undoubtedly in the very early uh, 17th century, uh, it could have been written absolutely yesterday in East Enders. Yeah, yeah. It's just that, that's what a mother does with a child, you know. Come on, sit down, sit, come on, sit. It's. Things like that just drive me mad with pleasure. I just think this 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 writer has understood everything, you know. Yeah, and he's writing. I mean, he's writing at a period where English is being forged as a language. You know, I think yeah, and I think he introduces something like two thousand words into the English yeah. language himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a time when when you know, um, I think twelve thousand. This is the this is the research. I mean, how much this is provable i don't know but twelve thousand new words entered the english language between 1500 and 1650 and shakespeare is responsible for two thousand of them two thousand yeah. out of twelve thousand yeah, yeah, yeah but that seems to me too part of what's extraordinary about him is that he immediately sees the playful uh, possibilities of language it's it, it so he's which is why i think he's not oh, let's not, we can't possibly even begin to get into the authorship question, uh, which anyway drives me insane. Oh, I, I, I said, the, the, the anti-Stratfordians, they're the anti-vaxxers yes. of the literary world, this idea yes. that Shakespeare didn't write. Very good, exactly right. But, but, but the, the thing is that this is not an aristocrat who, who's, who's, you know, incredibly well-educated from Oxford University. This is someone who just hangs out with people. Yeah. Yeah. And sees what they're like. You know, he just sees it. He's done it. I mean, he's changed nappies. He's, you know, he's done everything that, that John Doe in the street does. He's, he's every man, you know, and yeah. any man, with, except with this prodigious gift. But he's lived an ordinary life. Yeah, it's a great point. And just just finally then, Simon, it's an invidious question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, taking on to your desert island, you've got one play of Shakespeare to, oh. to, to have with you. I think I might, I might take The Winter's Tale. Really? So you'd go... I think it's the most extraordinary play. The most extraordinary. The most varied with its two radically different halves, time... Uh, the, the effect of time, the possibility of forgiveness, um, fresh life uh, uh, emerging out of horror. Oh, I think it's just astounding. 
Well, I might take with me with, with me Hamlet and read it for the fifty first. <laughs> like uh, there's always something else to read. Uh, Simon, I, I I would love to talk about Shakespeare with you for for much longer than this. But what a joy it's been! Thank you so much for for doing this today. Thank you, Steve.